You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. U.S. newspapers sustained a major cyber attack over the weekend, possibly ransomware, that disrupted printing. The attack is said to have originated overseas, but attribution so far is preliminary, murky, and circumstantial. A home security video system's found to have hard-coded credentials. There are changes in U.S. defense leadership. An American is arrested in Moscow on espionage charges. And alleged NSA leaker Hal Martin wins one and loses two in court. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, January 2nd, 2019. Happy New Year, everybody. Great to have you back. Hope you got some rest over the holiday break. Over the weekend, print operations at several major U.S. newspapers were disrupted by a cyber attack. Saturday editions of the San Diego Union Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Annapolis Capital Gazette, the Hartford Courant, the New York Daily News, the South Florida Sun Sentinel, and the Orlando Sentinel saw their editions delayed as the attacks on print plants affected production. The attack, which is believed to have involved a variant of Ryuk ransomware, targeted Tribune Publishing, but not all of the affected papers were Tribune properties. Tribune sold both the San Diego Union Tribune and the Los Angeles Times in 2018, but both papers still use Tribune Publishing's print plant. A number of the other affected papers, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, contract to use Tribune Printing Services for at least portions of their press run, which is how they came to be affected. As the New York Times put it, they were collateral damage in the attack. Tribune Publishing stressed that no customer information was compromised in the incident. The first signs of the attack surfaced Thursday, were believed to have been contained by Friday, but returned with considerable effect on Saturday. Sources in a position to know, according to the New York Times, said anonymously that, quote, we believe the intention of the attack was to disable infrastructure, more specifically servers, as opposed to looking to steal information. Attribution remains murky, but the Los Angeles Times says the attack is believed to have originated outside the United States. Neither Tribune Publishing nor the affected papers have reported receiving ransom demands, but the incident seems consistent with a ransomware attack. Security companies Know Before and Checkpoint have pointed out circumstantial similarities between this attack and operations of the North Korean government. The ransomware employed in the attack, Ryuk, is regarded as an evolved version of Hermes, a strain of malware previously attributed to Pyongyang's Lazarus Group. For its part, security firm CrowdStrike thinks Eastern European criminals are the probable culprits. They point to some evidence that the attackers may have used TrickBot, which has surfaced in attacks against financial institutions, to deliver the malware. 
In any case, it's too early to come up with any definitive attribution, especially since criminal groups and espionage agencies show an increasing disposition to beg, borrow, or steal one another's attack code. The security companies discussing several of the affected papers have said they found Ryuk in their systems, but so far that's as far as the evidence takes us. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security is investigating. With a new year ahead of us, there's no relief in sight to the talent shortages faced in the security industry. One approach to making the pool of potential candidates deeper is to look within your own organization and take a more human-centric approach. Steve Durbin is Managing Director of the ISF, the Information Security Forum, and he offers these thoughts. Pulling together the security workforce typically means that you're going to have to go hunting in different parts of the organization, assuming you're a large corporation, of course, for people who have been doing bits and pieces of this over some while. And and that is one of the challenges for corporations. How do we get this very much more high-level strategic perspective on our security workforce? How do we pull them together from the different parts of the organization that they're currently uh, they're currently sitting in um, and get them all focused in, uh, in the same direction. I think it's about really playing to the strengths that exist in, in most large-scale organizations today. What, what, what I mean by that is it's about taking much more of a human-centric approach. It's about collaborating with your human resources function and taking advantage of some of those well-established HR practices to build out a diverse workforce of capable individuals that map across to the challenges that you're facing. And if we think about the way that perhaps security has traditionally gone about doing it, that perhaps is not the way that it's been done. So it is about really trying to identify the skill sets that are required right the way uh, out into the strategic uh, period that that you're working through, determining where you have those skill sets in your organization they may be coming from the business. Um, Very often when I talk to senior executives about how can they uh, build out a sustainable security workforce, they're surprised when I say, well, don't just look in the technical area, look in the business area. You know, if we're trying to put in place a, a, a security enablement for your corporation, we need to understand how the business is working. And let's take some of those business people, put them into the security function. If we're trying to get awareness programs going, well, marketing, training, they're adept at doing that kind of thing. So let's involve them. So I think that uh, for a lot of uh, organizations, it's about taking a much more holistic approach to the way in which they go about building out their, their security workforce and calling on some of the skill sets that they already have in the enterprise that are, are, are pretty well suited to uh, solving some of these challenges. And so how do you suppose you, you put together an environment that will attract those people from other parts of the organization who, who may not be accustomed to the culture, the, the care and feeding of your, the cybersecurity workforce. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think there's a little bit, it depends on the organization here, Dave, but, you know, part of it is about perhaps overcoming some of the, the, the prejudice that might exist. I mean, there, there are some, you know, very well embedded views, aren't there, of what security is all about. You know, it's mm. very technical. It can be dull. They're the guys who tell us what we can't do. The, the reality of, of security and, and cyber in particular today is that it's a hugely fast-moving, very dynamic environment. Why? Because things are moving so very, very quickly. And I, I think that what we need to be doing in order to, to attract the right sorts of skill sets in there is to stop insisting on this host of specific technical skills. You know, you have to have a CISSP. You have to have 
a certain amount of experience and qualifications. Because the reality is that that just eliminates a large portion of current and prospective information security professionals who could very well have a, have a key role to play. That's Steve Durbin. He's managing director of the ISF. Security firm Rapid7 has disclosed hard-coded credentials in Guardzilla home surveillance video systems. They contain a shared Amazon S3 credential for storing saved video data. This means, in effect, that all users of the Guardzilla all-in-one video security system could access one another's saved home video. Rapid7, which credits researchers at Zero Day All Day with the discovery, recommends that users of the system not enable Guardzilla's cloud-based information storage. There are a few changes at senior levels of the U.S. Defense Department and intelligence community. Secretary of Defense Mattis is out, moved on earlier than the February exit his resignation letter had specified. He's been replaced on an acting basis by Patrick Shanahan, the deputy secretary. No permanent replacement has been named. Principal assistant to the Secretary of Defense Dana White has also left the Pentagon to be replaced on an acting basis by Charles E. Summers, Jr. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the NGA, will also receive a new director in February, as Robert Cardillo, who's led the agency since 2014, will be succeeded by Rear Admiral Robert Sharp, currently head of Naval Intelligence. In Russia, a U.S. citizen has been arrested on suspicion of espionage. The FSB says that Paul Whelan, security lead for automotive parts manufacturer Borg Warner, will be charged with spying. Whelan was in Moscow for the wedding of a friend. Details of the case are sparse, and Whelan's family rejects the notion that he was spying. Observers speculate that the arrest represents retaliation for recent U.S. arrests of Russian nationals on espionage charges, especially the arrest of Maria Butina, who last month took a guilty plea in a U.S. spying beef. Alleged NSA leaker Hal Martin succeeded in having incriminating statements he made during a 2016 FBI raid on his house suppressed. He wasn't Mirandized. But physical evidence the Bureau's special agents collected, including large quantities of classified material squirreled away in Mr. Martin's Maryland residence, remains admissible. The failure to read him his rights seems curious. The government said it was a non-custodial interview and that Mr. Martin was free to leave at any time. But their having entered his house armed and announced by flashbangs, and their having handcuffed him, led U.S. District Judge Richard D. Bennett to conclude that the interview was custodial, as they say, and that the special agents should have Mirandized Mr. Martin, no matter how otherwise friendly the interview may have grown over the hours they were together. Many observers have noted that the warrant to search Mr. Martin's property came in the wake of some ambiguous tweets he posted that could be read as having suggested he had secrets to offer. But of course, Twitter is a notoriously low-context medium, and Mr. Martin's posts could be entirely innocent. He's charged with 20 counts of willful retention of national defense information. The former NSA contractor's trial is scheduled for this coming June 17th. And finally, the Dark Overlords are said to be back. According to Motherboard, this time they're threatening to dox insurance companies to prove that the 9-11 terror attacks in New York, Virginia, and Pennsylvania were put-up jobs by a bunch of conspirators. Unless, of course, the insurance companies pay the Dark Overlords a ransom. Serious people will, of course, ignore the conspiracy nonsense and not pay the ransom. 
Of course, when the authorities finally get around to arresting the Dark Overlords, we hope they remember to read them their rights. We've seen that done on TV. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's great to have you back, as always. Uh, uh, interesting article from uh, the uh, Naked Security blog over on Sophos. This is written by Lisa Voss. And uh, they're asking the question, does wiping your iPhone count as destroying evidence? What's going on here? So this is a fascinating case. It was a young woman who was arrested in relation to a drive-by shooting. And the police at least suspected that there was some sort of valuable evidence on her iPhone. And while she was in police custody, the contents of her iPhone were completely erased. And the reason I use the passive voice there is because she, in her defense, uh, says that she is technologically illiterate and would have absolutely no idea how to erase the contents of her device. Now, I think it almost certainly is a crime to take some sort of affirmative action to delete the context, contents of your device, because that is the equivalent to destroying evidence, which, of course, in and of itself is a crime. Hmm. Um, and there are lots of ways technologically to delete the contents of your device. Using the Find My Phone app, for example, as it relates to an iPhone, 
once that phone has been lost or stolen, you can press that kill switch and it will delete all of that data. Right. Now, there's no proof that that happened in this case, although perhaps somebody who knew this suspect uh, was looking out for her and was able to have maybe her pat her Apple ID or whatever and logged in for her to erase this information. The more interesting hypothetical that this article presented is what if there's some sort of technology, and it, it may or may not exist uh, at this point, where the device would automatically detonate, would delete all of its information after 24 hours if the person has not logged in. So it would contemplate a scenario where a person is afraid that their phone is going to get lost or stolen and that if for some reason they don't log in or enter their PASCO within 24 hours – the presumption should be that it has been stolen and therefore the device should erase itself. Right. In that hypothetical, a person would not have taken the affirmative step of deleting their information specifically to evade law enforcement or specifically to conceal evidence. And I think the standard is very different. The fact that an affirmative step at least allegedly took, uh, took place here where somebody uh, whether it was the defendant herself or somebody she knew pressed that kill switch, I think makes it different and makes it far more likely that the conviction would be upheld uh, because she did destroy evidence. She did press that kill switch. But uh, I think we're going to see cases in the future about that latter scenario. Yeah, and I've seen instances, I believe on the iPhone, you can set it up where if you if you misenter a password a certain number of times, it will go into a, a wipe, you know, to wipe the phone uh, but that that requires action on behalf of the police or whoever's trying to get into it. So it's a little different there. Right. It is different uh, because, again, this hypothetical we're talking about here is where no no affirmative step is taken by anybody. Right. Whether it's law enforcement or, or the defendant. Presumably, the defendant would set up this technology not in anticipation of concealing evidence, but in anticipation of preventing people from gaining access to his or her information. So it's right. a completely innocuous act. That takes place outside the context of any sort of arrest or criminal prosecution. Yeah. And I think that's you know, very different when we're talking about destroying evidence. Um, and I think that that case is going to present itself. And in my opinion, I think there is a real distinction between pressing that kill switch after you've been arrested, after you know that there might be evidence against you, versus sort of a mechanical, regular operation on behalf of your device that deletes information on some sort of circumstance like you haven't logged into your phone within 24 hours. Now, do you suppose that law enforcement could make the case that, that you'd be in some way obligated to inform them that this device is going to detonate if not logged into in a certain amount of time? I That's an interesting question. I don't think necessarily would ever be on law enforcement's mind. I mean, it's not going to be part of a Miranda warning where it says, if you have your device on auto lock, be sure to disable it. Mm -hmm. A person is is in custody, so they're not going to have access to that device anyway. You know, And then we get into potential Fifth Amendment issues. What if you have that kill switch on? The government presents you with uh, that device and says, turn off that kill switch. We want to maintain this information. Then you have to take a... a an affirmative step to potentially incriminate yourself. Right. Um, and the complications here are, are endless. Um, but I think the, the question of destroying evidence is completely different if there hasn't been that affirmative step post-arrest where the information has been deleted. All right. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. 
And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.